Hello, this is JFL, John Francis Leader, and welcome to the Body, Mind, Self podcast. So, my guest today is Dr. Brendan Rooney. Brendan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thanks a million. Delighted to be here. So, I have wanted to have you on the podcast for a very long time. I've wanted uh, to be on the podcast for a very long I've time. I've wanted you on the podcast even before I started the podcast. Yeah. I knew I was going to start the podcast <laughs> because um, we've kind of known each other on and off for actually quite a while. Um because we've shared paths, I suppose, um, yeah. at the moment where we're both uh, knocking around UCD doing our various things. Those various things that we do themselves have um, you know, some interesting commonalities to each other, too. We're also uh, both in the Psychological Society of Ireland, which I think is where I first met. You probably at a conference, I think, a number of years ago was the first time we chatted. And, um, of course, one of the, the big things you do, which is highly aligned to my own interests, is you, uh, your current chair, I think, at the moment. And uh, you founded the, the uh, Special Interest Group for uh, Media, Art and Cyber Psychology, SIGMAC. That's right. I'm, PSI. Pa- I'm past chair at the moment. Past no, chair. Okay, I, I did set it up, so no one can take yeah. that away. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that that itself is fascinating. We'll get to that a bit more. Yeah, but sure. but that, that's, I suppose, how our, our, our paths have crossed. Um, for anybody who doesn't know you, how would you introduce yourself? Who are you? What do you do? What, what are your interests? Yeah, good question. I think I would say I'm a psychologist who has broad interests. And then mm. whenever I try and think, because, you know, in academia, it's important to have this academic signature. And I try and describe my interests I always come back to this idea of the interaction between cognition and emotion mm. which is quite broad and and then I always add on that it's in the context of media and entertainment and mm. technology because these are instruments and tools that for all sorts of reasons and for a long long time people have been using them to either regulate someone else's emotion or or regulate their own emotion right via attention so I'm interested in that process. Now, from the very start, you've brought up a very interesting point, which yeah. is, yeah, when you try to define yourself, um, there's a bit of a problem, isn't there? Because yeah. if you go too narrow, as sometimes seems to be the case with academia, and there's some weird, really obscure subset of, of some subject, yeah. it seems that you lose an awful lot of the context of that that you might want to capture. But at the same time, when you too, go too broad and you say, well, I focus on experience or perception, and you leave it at that, it seems to lack some discipline. Yeah, and I it's think, a hard thing, isn't mm, it? I think that's exactly the issue. And then the thing that collects my work most of the time is my interest in the methods and tools we use. Mm-hmm. So I think as a psychologist in this like kind of journey to try and explore the mind and tap into the immeasurable aspects, yeah. you start to focus on the tools we use. And my skills and expertise tend to be around research methods, research design. Right. And then I see things like media and entertainment as part of that world, part of that tools that researchers can use mm. that are rich and real life and at the same time highly controllable. Mm. That um that trade-off in has existed before in, in a lot of research, this idea that a researcher can bring you into the lab and they can find out at when they set the volume at this level, the brightness of the screen at this level, this many people, you're in this chair, it doesn't move. Yeah. How do you respond in this weird situation? And then it doesn't generalise beyond that. Mm. And then the flip side is that the researchers who go out into the real world, into the field, and uh, then they've no control over these things, so they might find effects, but they're not sure if that will generalise either. Right. So, yeah, I guess it's trying to find the 
balance between those and we work yeah and i don't think they need to be in conflict but it does yeah. it does pose a bit of an existential problem when you try and write your name on a, a business card or exactly. sum it up very very That's simply it. yeah it's like if people who know you you know they, they get it isn't it yeah. but the elevator <laughs> yeah. pitch becomes yeah. a little bit difficult yeah yeah you know you're right and somebody I says what so. you do you say what do you need isn't yeah. it it's, it's <laughs> yeah. a bit tricky yeah um why that what what got you uh, on this path I have do you know I've wondered about that someone asked me the other day what music I like and I realised I'm using Spotify to figure that out you know the way <laughs> yeah, when yeah, these yeah. things so I yeah. kind of I'm looking back at the things I do and the work I do to try and figure out why or where I came from but what I can tell you is I've always loved TV and film but but bigger than that I've loved stories mm. and uh, I think I have a I can get quite excited and uh, I get lost in, you know, the f- fantasy and spirituality in mm. bigger ideas and the same in science as well. There's yeah. this, this, and, uh, and it's, it's an intersection between wanting to answer questions that are hard, tough or quantitative mm-hmm. and then looking at what they mean in the bigger picture. Mm. And, uh, like I say, a really, rich area for me to do my work found its place in the in this media entertainment stuff Mm. and that you know what you just said there i think sums up what i found interesting about your work is is that mix of that rather rigorous science with that slightly more esoteric at times sense of how we feel and and kind of the journey that we're on the story or the narrative that's at play and sometimes those things are i i don't even need to say attention i think sometimes they're just different streams that aren't even attention they just people go off in very different directions with them yeah what's, yeah. what's been your experience of that yeah so my um as an undergraduate student i was really taken by professor kieran benson's work he was mm. my uh, lecturer at the time and um he was originally a developmental psychologist looking at the way in which uh, children grow and 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 uh, develop different capacities and his work moved on into exploring philosophy and bigger I- ideas of how we generate an idea of self or mm. this concept of self mm. and uh, as an undergraduate student i think i really liked his approach his his love of um like that like culture and arts and film but at the same time his interest in something big like what is self mm. and and the functional approach what does it do for us how do we use it and that's another thing that i like to bring into my work is this functional approach Mm. um so he supervised my my undergraduate project and my postgraduate work and then he retired during my phd um and i think that fostered those interests in me and allowed Mm. me to grow them a bit yeah led you led you to bridge those together yeah because it's it's not even okay to bring them together. It strikes me as fundamentally necessary yes. if we're to do good science yeah. or good art, for that matter. Yeah, you know, they they lend themselves to each other. I think, it, I think, with my interest in research methods and statistics and research design and in teaching students, I would have to give them feedback and I'd mm. have to identify what it was that that I felt was missing or why was I not excited by this particular piece of work yeah and it was that bit that was missing it was Mm. it was adherence to the rules 
so much so that uh, that something got lost mm. in it, and mm. like the you know the discussions of um, APA style referencing or <laughs> degrees of freedom in a statistical test. Yeah, that it was very necessary for me to to not just teach these skills, but make sure students adhere to them because they're living in this world that needs them. Yeah. And at the same time, trying to communicate to them that, that that's a system and that there are bigger things in, in life. And it's a difficult job to do. I think I've always been kind of inspired by kind of play school type, uh, type education and like the work of Marie Montessori and that type of, of, of approach. And, Sometimes I think they, they get it right at, at such a young age. You know, we, we, we don't teach mathematics in the abstract. We've got a bunch of stuff that we're adding and removing. And yeah. it's not that there isn't a mathematical principle to that. There certainly is, very much so. I know my young son, he just loves numbers. And, you know, it's counting everything yeah. and that. But it's not in the abstract either. It is very applied and grounded in some way. And it is an emotional experience, the satisfaction of adding things up, of stacking things, of dividing them, of yeah, playing exactly. with them. Yeah, I went to a couple of years back now, I went to... A, a what was called the Seamus Heaney lecture series in St. Pat's where they were mm. there were talks about teaching education and um, it was it was teaching creativity was the theme mm. and one of the speakers there the name escapes me at the moment but maybe I'll let you know later yeah. is um, he's he drew that same that same observation that you made but he, he drew connections with how you know the ancient Egyptians learned about physics by right. building a pyramid and, yes, the, yeah. and the theory was added on later so that, yeah. that and that he says in modern societies we do it the other way around where where we teach them all the abstract stuff first and then mm. they have to go off into the world and apply it mm. and he just he felt that, that it was backwards yeah right yeah. right and so there is we inherently are storytelling and i know that's a theme that that keeps coming up in your work and certainly in mine that's uh, you know with my therapeutic focus particularly is something that comes up again and again obviously in entertainment we see it but in education we really do too we're yeah. always trying to tell ourselves stories to make sense of the the world in some way so that we can navigate it there's a danger in just focusing on the content but not looking at how the content comes together in some 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 sort of a story arc for us yeah how do you think about some of those topics in your work yeah that that reminds me recently i heard an interview with uh dan sperber and uh hugo mercer i think Mm. have a, a new book out called the enigma of reason and in it they're arguing that and they they set up this paradox that reason uh if it's it's this human special trait that people say something we developed that's so good for us and it's so great it makes us special that uh they argue well then why hadn't it evolved in any other animals Mm. and also why are we so bad at it why are there so many mistakes why is the cognitive bias and all these sorts of things Mm. and so they argue that it's it's not the case instead reason is used as a as a function in a social in the social world, for us to align what we've already done with the goals of the group or 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 the goals of others to 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 bring them in line with us, and 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 then perhaps more slowly to learn about what we did, mm. but but moving away from this idea that we um we rationally decide on how we're going to be and how right. we, and I just love this idea that this the rational side of our mind, the conscious, the reason, is this like accidental add-on and, and it's from <laughs> that that the story we tell comes and, sure. that, and that that's links with the work 
by Professor Kieran Benson on how he says self is a story we tell that's um works as like a cultural locative system he calls mm. it for us to place ourselves in in a wor- in a social world yeah um so i love i love those ideas that we're we're behaving we're doing we're responding we're living in the world and at the same time we're just constantly telling these stories mm. about ourselves and about others and, and we need to isn't it because you know while there's quite a bit given in the present moment around us there's so much that isn't and yeah. you know of course when we talk about storytelling it's tempting to think of it in a in a very conscious cognitive sense of uh, oh yes i'm here i need to go there and i've come from that other place yeah but you know of course just to look at any object and know what the hell we're looking at requires a huge amount of storytelling in a very implicit sense yeah exactly it does and um we tell ourselves stories about ourselves at the same time right, it's right. not always a message that's to the outside mm. as well and i think uh yeah, that's important. And it's complex. And, and, and for me, it stands out as being very much the job of therapy. And I mean, therapy in a very broad sense, not uh, as we've discussed before, sitting in the room with, with one person for an hour, but just how we progress, how we develop, uh, which is a therapeutic experience yeah. to the degree that uh, we are progressing and going well. Because those stories um, can need updating like software does. It's interesting. Sometimes they were wrong to begin with through no fault of our own. We were just trying to make sense of the world in some way and we had a kind of provisional story that we kept telling ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes they were actually right at the time, but not anymore. It's, and it's true as well that when we all agree a story and we continue to tell it for a long time, that it's formative and it becomes right. And that and that I think... Yeah, important point. Yeah, to, dis, to dismiss it then... So I'll give you an example. I'm a big fan of the work of Lisa Feldman Barrett on emotion. So she's she's uh, released a book recently that's called How Emotions Are Made in the Brain, I think. I may have that title not quite right. But, sure. um, and her work is is really interesting because it's just, it's the idea that emotion is a kind of uh, not a purely social construct, but mm. it's a constructive experience and that we um, have physiological responses to the world mm. that are, uh, and that we're aware of these and that we have this kind of interest, kind of perception going on. And at the same time, our brain is filling in the gaps and it's, and it's part of this story that we've learned as a social construct. Mm. And, and, to, to take her extreme argument then is that there's no such thing as these kind of six fundamental emotions that mm. anger is something different to sad but that but that um that these are ways in which we construe it's categorization like right. so you have your rainbow your different uh, electromagnetic mm. energy but we see seven separate colors mm. and um and we all agree that these emotions are these different ways and she's arguing that that's holding us back it can be the source of emotional problems and so mm. on. And the and the thing there is that these are this is a story the world is telling about what mm. emotions are and and um and all the research holds on to that story. So there's this huge body of research that supports the idea that there are basic emotions with specific fingerprints in the brain. But when we look at the evidence, it appears as though all the methods they used we're always set up to perpetuate this story mm. to call on the things that we all agree now in her argument you know just knowing this is enough to break us free of these emotional problems and sometimes i have reservations about that extreme version because while i fully agree that that model of emotion makes sense mm-hmm. it's 
I, I don't know if it's as easy just to let it go, just to sure. you know, sh- shake it off once we know about it. Sure. Because this is a story we've been telling for a long yeah. time and so much of our culture is kind of built around it. Yeah, and the, the model I use quite a bit is that of physiotherapy, really, for changing beliefs, in, yeah. in a sense. It yeah, is yeah, a kind yeah. of a bit, because if we use the physiotherapy model, there are some things that could be changed pretty quickly. You know, you will find out a bit of information, you go, okay, I'm going to act differently. Yeah. And I think the physiotherapy equivalent of that is the therapist says to you okay i see how you're lifting there maybe you work in a warehouse why don't you try lifting with your legs instead of your back you know so yeah. that probably pretty quickly you would get right and you would start to practice yes but the actual development of muscle tone that may take weeks and months yeah and and so on and, and so i i agree that's exactly right i think and at the same time added on to that is this idea of like how I'd love to be Buddhist, but you can't be Buddhist when you're supposed to work nine to five and you have to take your lunch break <laughs> at this time and you have to get the bus. How am I supposed to be in the moment when I have to think that I have to get off in two stops and I have to go pick up the kids or right, whatever? Right. So there's this, there's, there's all, there's the, there's this short term and long term things I can do, and then mm. there's the world. The, the fully socially constructed world that we're part of that right. also is slowly changing. A complication that I see, and I see it a lot, again, therapeutically, because I just have a chance to meet a lot of different people and see their stories, but I see it in my own life and, and the lives of people I know otherwise too, is that the storytelling is complicated because there tend to be kind of intentions which are valid and universal, but implementations of them which are kind of local and maybe need to be subject to change. In a sense, at core, we seem to want the right things. But the problem is, is we believe that there's one way to get them. And if somebody says, don't do it that way, it sounds like they're saying, don't reach for the thing you feel you need. Yeah, and and this is one of the reasons why I think using media entertainment and many times like big mass media or or like popular uh, culture is really important to me because there's the way you tell the story is really important yes. which you're getting that and it's and and for me that's about the storyteller's ability to draw your attention to one part of the story over another the characters the mm. moral the setting whatever it is and that if we look to expert storytellers in the world mm. they may not even realize the techniques they're using or they may explicitly realize the techniques mm. they're using but either way they're using these tools to direct our attention to different parts of a story and, mm. and when it's popular when the when the masses consume it and love it i think yeah. it says something about us as a society and says something about their ability to tell a story mm-hmm. and then what i'm interested in is to start to pick apart those bits and see yeah. how what was that connection between the storyteller and the person why is that film moving my emotions and how how come the moral of that story wasn't rejected by that culture but it was by this culture it's such an important and culture was the word that was coming up for me when you're speaking it's such an important significant part of culture shaping and uh it's kind of interesting isn't it because it it tends to be used in different ways maybe formally and very thoughtfully by the likes of advertising agencies which is, is is interesting uh maybe for entertainment purposes for artists who may serve a great and definitely do serve a great therapeutic good but again as you know we think about things in a kind of a hollywood continuum and a commercialization point of view and what sells there's a little bit of you know debate about what actually gets released and what's really good for us and and so on 
when we think of kind of learning education or therapeutic change through those kinds of media channels, we tend to, a lot of the time, I think, think of something rather tacky and preachy or, you know, badly produced and, 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 yeah, and yeah, hopeless yeah. in that sense, which always deeply saddened me. And I hope doesn't need to stay the case. It's not always the case by any means, but I think there's a bit of a perception of that sometimes. But it is a group therapy. It's a cultural development through these media streams. Yeah, big time. And I think that the choice people have around all their engagement with these different stories and worlds um, is one of the greatest powers it has. But at the same time, people uh, can make choices that might not be in their best interest and be exposed to the sorts of stories or tell stories or consume media and entertainment that may not be what's best to serve them Mm -hmm. the really problematic thing there is that outside of a therapeutic setting we have these like moral judgments of Mm -hmm. how much time someone should be spending on facebook or how Mm -hmm. much of those tv shows someone should be watching and then it's it's a difficult one to navigate because uh, people maybe choosing these things because it's serving a function for them at yeah. the time yeah. or maybe the source of the problems that they feel they have mm. and i think um the, the perhaps more safe thing about therapy is that it's about well there's different approaches but but the the one that lets them just see those things that are going yeah. on yeah. so that they can make a informed decision about mm. this this the kind of ways in which they engage with those activities. What was your kind of original engagement with storytelling? What type of media or what type of stories did, did kind of younger Brandon encounter? And so, what, what did it for you essentially in the beginning? Yeah, I think the interesting thing is I don't often distinguish between different types. So instantly what I want to answer here is that my, my mom said it was a large family, there's loads of kids and mm. we'd... Um, five sisters and a brother my two parents and the sitting room couldn't really house everyone in seats <laughs> it was like so a that, cinema yeah <laughs> exactly but she's i think when i'd get so close to the television and uh, be on the floor and i was really young uh, it would strain my neck to have to look up so that I, she said that i would watch the tv lying down but it would be upside down so i'd be on the floor uh looking at the the television upside down um and she recounts this as this like amazing <laughs> thing, but it sounds like I just I don't know some sort of addict or something who couldn't even make sense of this stuff. Yeah. But um, so th- that's kind of an idea that like television is is one that that would jump to mind. But I have to say that even today, I was always fascinated by stories that wouldn't be seen as entertainment because people would see them as um like true story or or like recounting facts rather than stories. So for example, um, a story of my grandfather who went off to fight in the war or um, the story of an auntie who I didn't know when because maybe she passed away or and that these are stories as well but mm. and, and that they, I was always fascinated by these what's going on in someone else's life or why are my two friends arguing with each other that uh, I think yeah there's a there's a drama about all that stuff that we yes. never would think is yeah. a story so I guess uh, the short answer is TV but uh, story was always around my so house so you were fairly multimedia from the very beginning yeah then. I think so I think mm. so yeah. And that, that's the interesting thing about storytelling is that it does seem to be, to one degree or another, fairly uh, fairly 
media neutral or agnostic in a sense that the same story can be delivered via one media, another media, or across media in many respects. Yeah. And a lot of those cultural shifts that we talk about are multimedia by definition. And yeah. kind of the point is they'll be reinforced by a newspaper and maybe a bus shelter and maybe somebody chatting about right. it in the pub, isn't it? Yeah. There's this sort of a, a mix that exactly. yeah. takes place. And there's the the movie, the book, and the song to go with it, and then there's the video game, yes. and then there's the it's on your cereal, as you say. Um, yeah, it's really the 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 model I really liked uh, to I had. I, I engage with certain theoretical models around uh, stories and what they do for us. And mm. one that I really liked is this idea of a, a situation model so that when we try and make sense of any situation that goes beyond a pure visual stimulus, when you put a character in there or an actor or an agent and, um, and there's a series of events that are connected, mm. that the way in which people understand that is they build these cognitive representations, these ideas or models in their mind where they will, uh, it's like a, creating a little stage in, in, for yourself. And what you do is you, you, um, you, you very little information you can do this. I can say a man walked down a road and, and all of a sudden you're also adding in what type of road, what type yes. of sky, yeah. what type of man, and why he's going. And, and even with just extra little bits of information, your, your model may get more and more rich or may get more and more accurate if that's even a thing. Mm. But um, we build these models. And uh, they help us understand things about the world. But these are the same models that when when you told me how I would find this place, I'm building a model, as, it's a spatial model of mm. where I have to go and who I will meet there. And these expectations and predictions are all built into it. Yeah. My, my uh, interest in stories is that books give us information from which we build a model. TV shows give us information from which we we build a model and that these are all just roots mm. by which we get the information and we build a model. But the idea is that the model that we build or work with this cognitive idea of what's going on in a situation mm -hmm. is identical in its nature, in its essence, in its representation in the brain, mm -hmm. maybe not in its content. It's identical whether or not we got that information from a book or from a film or right. from a right. or from a real life event, and so um, yeah, so so that that's why I think that the world talks a lot about like, did you prefer the book or the film? Yes, and, and I think yeah. there's something like tactile or something about the process of engaging with the story that people have preferences over. Mm -hmm but it means psychologically or serving a function, there may not be as much difference between right. uh, these fabricated medias and the and, and how we use them. Mm. There's a number of important points there, I think. I think yeah, we, I did, we can talking, unpack sorry. this, we continue. That's, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm trying yeah. to cue my questions here because they're all wonderful. Um, maybe just to, to ground it before we jump into some of those questions yeah. because there's several there that I think are wonderful. Um, what what was the bridge then for you um, lying uh, at whatever position or angle on, on the couch <laughs> the watching TV, TV exactly, yeah. look, looking up at it at, at that age and then to studying psychology and, 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 and taking that path? What, 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 what linked those two? Yeah, actually, only now that you're asking me that, it's really clear. I always wanted to be an actor because I'd see these actors on TV and mm. in film. I always wanted to be an actor and get involved in film. I did dramas. I did, um, I remember, like, auditioning for plays and films yeah. and stuff when I was very young. And then um, 
I think I thought that psychology would offer me two things. It would offer me a way to continue to explore the human mind and and story but at the same time I felt like it was maybe a little bit more stable than acting which I, I don't fully still believe no way that's like, that's like that's like <laughs> yeah, a mirror of my story because yeah. uh, my background was in film I studied filmmaking yeah. I was involved with the Irish Film Institute a good bit film based down there really great people doing some great things and uh, I was focused more on directing and editing they were the two things I loved and I did a fair bit of stuff on, on film sets, some stuff on RTE, work experience, just, you know, really yeah, getting the yeah. feel of it. And uh, I kind of had two impressions. Is One is this is great, but very challenging. But the other one is, God, if I'm actually going to earn a living in this in any serious <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. I still love it. I still in, enjoy doing it. But but it, it seemed to be that the kind of the skill sets behind it, though, were more universal than just one Right. particular implementation yeah, of it exactly. i.e. standing in a film set that you get a job every yeah. you know two years or something yeah. like that on unless you're doing very very well so equally that's what led me to study psychology yeah, that's so ex- that's, that's interesting ex- exactly what i felt i wonder how many people are in psychology yeah, for that are, yeah actually yeah that's that's everybody's <laughs> yeah. story guys yeah no i remember saying to a friend of mine um that it, I, was, I was pitching it to him like, no, this is a great choice. It leaves my options open. Kind of like if I was interested in being a fisherman, I could do the psychology of fishing. If I wanted to do, you know, exactly. act, you know, whatever that is, <laughs> right, it just yeah. felt like it was really yeah. broad. Um, but there, there is something to that. And it, it's true that it's certainly not going to hurt your acting to have, have yeah. a psychology <laughs> background. Yeah, 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 yeah. However, I think a lot of people, when they start uh, psychology, they get a little bit disappointed sometimes. Uh, there's all these textbooks and talk about people from a distance. You don't really interact with people that much. Yeah, yeah. Some courses are better than others, but exactly. uh, it's not quite. It's wonderful, but it's not necessarily quite what people expect it to be. Yeah, and, and there are many of our students these days who are very determined from day one to be therapists or clinical psychologists. Mm. It's a really popular route to go down. And like you say, that they don't often get a lot of experience of what that might be like hands-on until maybe they're 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 already on the road to that yeah and it was never really a major goal of mine so without that it meant i had i felt like i could you know play in the sandbox a little bit more and um, mm. i could explore the classes in philosophy a little bit and yeah and yeah i think i because i wasn't as focused i left myself open to kind of finding this weird area that we're talking about right now psychology can also be very interesting route to essentially do philosophy but undercover yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and still get employed yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> good and i don't mean that to offend any philosophers <laughs> listening I'm, I'm encouraging you to just yes. just your label sometimes and yeah get a few more jobs I, yeah and at the same time my interest in teaching and learning i'm just seeing the students coming in and these poor first year students who have me as a lecturer and all they want is a yes or no answer all they want is to know that do you mean i should just do this and i'm saying well it depends and i'm trying to encourage them so much to just um enjoy that uh enjoy the uncertainty um, right and uh i don't know if they see the value in it 
because the, the philosophy, the epistemic approaches we take to it is so extremely important precisely because of the, the narrative and storytelling points we're talking about before. And that seems to be the risk on though, you know, reductive types of sciences offer great advantages in so many ways in trying to constrain things and, 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 and trying to have a good solid ground to build on. There's a danger, I suppose, that, you know, it's like having a mosaic, having lots of tiles, but not actually seeing how they go together in a sense. Yeah, yeah, Somebody yeah, yeah. needs to step back and use the evidence by all means, not just make up something. Yeah. But they need to see where it all comes together <laughs> exactly, at some point. Exactly. And mm. yeah, what are the bigger questions that connect these little bits of evidence? So in your research then as you progressed on and as you as you got into psychology, what have you been doing with yourself then in your research or what have been some of yeah. the topics that you've been looking at or, or following? Yeah, so I did a master's in uh, looking at some behavioral neuroscience of face perception mm. and how our brain might respond to our own face versus others. And then I started my PhD around how we engage with film at a broad level. I, I wanted to try and use different measures to explore emotional responses to film. Mm. And I wanted to manipulate the films. I wanted to use multiple measures and I wanted to try and manipulate the people a little bit so I would tell them to try and feel a strong emotion or not feel an emotion I would use different size screens turn on and off the lights okay so it was it was really about trying to um, manipulate the situation and see how that affected the relationships between the measures of these experiences that they're having their skin conductance their heart rate gotcha. or what they say and so I published some of that work and then when, when I finished my PhD, I went to work in IADT down the road and there um, they have a wonderful psychology program that's um, connected with a kind of a technology training and then it's housed in the same institute as this. It's a wonderful blend. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So within that area, within that institution, and then moving on to UCD, I was able to start to work with um, some experts in the area of filmmaking and that sort of thing. So I worked with David Quinn, who's an animator there, and we were able to manipulate um, a, a pre-existing animation to explore the role of close-ups mm -hmm. in film and how that might shape our engagement with the characters um, and how we think about their mind and what they're feeling. It's the idea of theory of mind that we use in mm. psychology. And from that then, I started using virtual reality. So a research study we're doing at the moment is um, we'll sit people in a virtual reality cafe and they're opposite another character, uh, probably not too different to this distance. Mm. And then that character, uh, we can manipulate whether or not they'll make eye contact with okay. the with the person and um so there are these moments of connection between the participant and this character mm. and very little else happens and then in addition to that we frame it as either a kind of a narrative experience we say welcome to the cafe this is what happened you know mm. you met this person the bus broke down there's absolutely or in another condition we'll kind of shape it as this um we've designed a program and we need to make sure it works it's really making the artificial nature of the whole thing salient mm. And so, again, as is my style, we used a lot of different measures, time mm. perception, measures of emotion, theory of mind. And we're trying to explore um, the relationship between those measures and those manipulations. Very good. Very good. Yeah. So it's another example of working with people who have made and designed these experiences. And we want to see how 
how people are responding to them and what that tells us about the uh, kind of mind and emotion. And it's a fascinating time um, in in that space at the moment. And we'll we'll get into virtual and augmented and mixed reality um, in, in a little bit more detail. Yeah. But it, it, there seems to be a bit of a renaissance, I suppose, at the moment of people doing really interesting things in terms of creating exhibits and installations and experiences or whatever kinds of words we want to use. Uh, it seems to be a really good time as a research scientist to be in there making sense of what's happening and actually having an awful lot happening that we don't need to try and make it happen ourselves we can tap into a lot of interesting things yes exactly so at the time i didn't always have a lot of resources um in my lab and so we need to take advantage of the stuff that was out there already yeah. find that strange film that has two different types of shots and then then we can see how right. those different types right. of shots affect things and uh, as time went on then and and more and more um, industry experts and artistic experts were interested in the sciences and, mm. and, and meeting me then we get to collaborate a little bit and then through their research we can align it with what we need as research. Now there are some people probably a little bit more like us who have this kind of blend of, of academic interest and applied interest in, in one shape or form or the other or come from a film background or whatever it might be Right. Um, I'm glad those people exist yeah. uh, because uh, it's 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 very important, even just from a from a language point of view, <laughs> to yeah. try and find the way to discuss those topics. Yeah. But what is your sense of of the relationship between people in practice and then people looking at the theory of it? Certainly, there seems to be a sense in which those of us who are studying these things have respect and an interest in what, say, a filmmaker is doing, what a director is doing, what an editor is doing, etc. Um, so that definitely exists. Is there a stream much the other way? Uh, because you, you hear a lot of directors of the people who flunked film school or didn't really go down that road, even a film theory. But what about kind of the academia or the research actually informing the practice in that sense? Yeah, so um, I think in some ways um, there are many disciplines and not just the creative ones where they're coming from a history of being told that it wasn't academic like the humanities aspect of film studies where yeah. for a long time the, you know other academic academic disciplines were saying film isn't an art and, yeah. and then they, we've moved beyond that and now i'd say video games can't be and uh, something that's yeah, yeah. of interest or art the same stories and i think when people are working in those areas they become uh, they have to protect that discipline they need to draw a line around it and preserve it and mm. foster it and then when it starts to blossom i think it's difficult to then reach out and work in an interdisciplinary way yeah yeah and at the same time others are finding that in order for them to grow beyond their discipline mm. they're they're reaching out what's interesting to me is how technology is uh, making everything easier you can have a heart rate monitor on your phone yeah. and and therefore an artist can now measure someone's heart rate right. all they have right. to do is read up a little bit about what that means and suddenly they can produce knowledge that's that was coming out of only the top labs yeah you know 40 yeah. years ago yeah and um, and the and the flip side is then uh, when uh, psychologists are using films for their research, only so more and more neuroscientists are finding much more rich and ecological data from yeah. using films rather than right. these reduced stimuli. And so what happens is these people do find each other and then they mm. produce this really exciting and interesting work. And, and when it becomes 
when it becomes useful, like this theory of evolution, people who don't do it get left behind. Uh, or, or, and uh, it, that might be a slow process, mm-hmm. but I think it means um, there's there are rewards to the interdisciplinary approach. There are, and, and I think technology is just facilitating that more, isn't it? Because yeah. certain technologies require the involvement of different people, and you know, as anybody who knows anything about filmmaking knows, and that's one of the reasons it's hard. It is a massively collaborative process, yeah. so that's and, I think makes that happen. Yeah, but at the same time, knowledge isn't just in the ivory towers anymore. So the same exactly, so people yeah. can access we the, uh, people can access all all that research that was before you know maybe inaccessible because yeah. th- there might have been three groups before when i'm thinking about it one is maybe research scientists studying media kind of in a lab somewhere by themselves the other group is maybe a more humanities approached film theory or criticism type approach who maybe wouldn't interact much with the previous group at all and then the other people would be people out there guerrilla filmmaking right and they may not have talked to each other at all but again as you're saying if somebody now is guerrilla filmmaking they're gonna say how do i make sure i don't cross the line again with my camera they google it now then they find it a kind of a study on yeah. perception they go that's a cool idea bring it in yeah and then they maybe come across a bit of film criticism as well or theory that's based on a film that they liked and they incorporate that into how they frame a shot exactly it seems like a closer feedback yeah. loop potentially now definitely but at the same time when we look one step further before that, like the the very origins of film was very much a scientific exercise. It was about mm. how when we move these frames quick enough, it appears as though they're moving, right? And so the study of visual perception and how the brain works was very integrated in this idea of mm. um, of the start of what film is. Yeah. And that there, there was less distinction between... Um, the scientists and the engineers who are making this stuff and the marketing that can turn it into stories and so I think the distinction wasn't always there Mm. I think film came from our interest in science and people and that's a very good point and it seems that we've we've kind of forgotten that to some degree uh, and you know those generations unfortunately aren't necessarily around anymore in those particularly early days cameras have become ubiquitous there is this sense you grab something and you shoot it the the technical sense of what's really happening in that moment gets forgotten and that's of course good in some ways because you know it removes constraints and it promotes creativity but i kind of think that a lot of the the newer manifestations of technology at the moment are making us go back to those roots again aren't they and rethink what these things are and how we use them what are the rules or the language for them yeah i was at it i was at in i was in amsterdam a couple of years ago with a a group of um academics that i would really look up to these uh, big deals in the area and they're talking about this this grant writing they're going to do and an engineer came in to the group and said we can do so much stuff. We just need you to tell us what to do with it. And it was that idea <laughs> exactly. that like the technology was was able to do all these things and that it brought them to a point where it made them question the big questions. What yeah. what does that mean for us as people? Where can we go with science? What are the sorts of things we can do? Mm-hmm. And in the past, where they looked was to science fiction. They looked to the films and stories of yes. Star Trek and Star yeah. Wars to start yeah. shape what they wanted to do with that technology. And it's amazing how much we're needing to do that, isn't it? Because speaking of the storytelling, when we try to think about the future, we have to bootstrap it a bit and use our references from the past to think about the future, which right. is, is interesting. Yeah. Uh, isn't it so funny how 
you know, when you think about the future, your mind goes to the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah, you know, whether yes, it's exactly. Tomorrowland and Disney <laughs> yeah. or whether it's, you know, so many sci-fi yeah. films. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah, exactly. S- some, um, some I, I, I don't know what that means for the future, but I suppose it's always been that way. We, we have to build on it in that way. So speaking of referencing sci-fi, um, realism is is a big theme that comes up in your work. And mm-hmm. uh, as Morpheus might well ask you, uh, what is real? Yeah, exactly. What, what, what is real? I think, I think I was really, really interested in visual illusions. I used to teach this class to um, uh, art students in NCAD on uh, visual illusions mm-hmm. and what that said about the brain. And what struck me uh, as great about them is they all work on tricking the brain because the brain doesn't see things as they are. And that what, what so for example, um, all the all the wiring that goes from your retina to, to the rest of your brain comes out the front of the retina, mm. right? So it'd be like having all the wires on the screen itself. Like what we do here, basically. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and so the light coming in the eyes, it's like looking through a hedge, right? Because you've got all this stuff in the way. Yeah. But it doesn't feel that way for all sorts of reasons, and our brain fills in the gaps. So I don't want to get too, like, kind of silly, and but, it, but it seems like we never see what's out there right Mm. and there's all those big philosophical debates that have been going on for a long time about how our you know perception is in our our mind and yet realism became this thing that people would describe as a feature of the medium as the film or the book and uh, I I've talked before you've heard me talk about Jurassic Park and Mm. how it was this weird situation where I was blown away by how realistic it was at the time these dinosaurs were in the bright light and at the same time people would say you know realistic Brendan what are you talking about the dinosaurs and so it, it struck me that there was this realistic for me or different types of realistic or and and i i liked the idea of toying with that in my mind and all of these kind of came to me just thinking that i think we constantly define this idea of realism Mm. um and for that i'd say the extent to which something feels non-mediated as a as a loose definition rather rather than reality or not reality this realism because of course there are things that are classified as reality that might feel mediated in some way so put that aside and we talk about this characteristic of realism that in in everyday language it's it's seen as this um this single dimensional thing that went from yes to no you know it was on a scale of one to ten and it could be up this way and and I thought, well, actually, there are multiple dimensions to this. And if we had a better way to understand it, we could use the way in which the brain processes information. Mm. And one of the most Im- kind of useful theories uh, and one arguably the most empirically supported theories of neuroscience is this idea of a dual process. Mm-hmm. And I found that a really useful model for this idea of realism. And maybe say a bit about that, that dual process model, because I think that yeah, is helpful. I think so. It was made very popular lately by um, Daniel Kahneman, who has a book, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. And then others have kind of criticized that it kind of simplifies things. And that makes sense. It's a popular idea of, um, but I, I, I thought a very good article was one by Stanovich and 
Evans, who tried to, two researchers who were constantly talking about this, who came together to try and address this issue. Mm-hmm. And so the, the problem they found, okay, I should say, sorry, that uh, the, the two processes, in, in, in short, that we have a way of, of, of processing information that is, um, that is effortful, that is controlled, and that it means we, it's like this rational, explicitly thinking about something. Yeah. And at the same time, we have our automatic, unconscious, mm-hmm. immediate response to a situation. So if I threw a bottle at you, you don't have to know it's a bottle before you move out of the way. You have responded and you may immediately feel all sorts of nondescript emotions mm-hmm. um, and, and that it's it's a little bit later, even just a moment when you realize it was a bottle where you can yeah. process my intentions, yeah. where you can think about what that meant. And uh, and that separation, um, I think, is it, it, it just comes up in so much of the work when I'm looking at these different measures and different ways in which we engage with entertainment. It seems media. to be a, a huge recurring theme, not only specifically in our work, which is inevitably going to demand an understanding of something like that, yeah. but in so many philosophies, therapeutic methods, and just thinking about day-to-day life, this idea of, of conscious and automatic. And, and it, it's confusing, I think, because there's a sense in which we say, well, hold on a minute, am I in control or am I not? And we realize it's a little bit more sophisticated than that. Yeah. We kind of have these various patterns at play, these these habitual reflexes and responses that we can use. And um, yeah, we, 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 like you say in that example, when, when, you know, really we're in a moment of needing to act suddenly and immediately, there's really very little, certainly conscious interpretation going on that moment yeah. in terms of what happens. So that model, as you relate that then to what is real and thinking about realism and thinking particularly in the context of, of media. Yeah. How does that model play out then in that I, context? I love the idea. I use this analogy quite a lot in my talks of um, Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz gang are all going to see the wizard and they're finally faced before him and there's explosions and he's saying, what the hell are you doing here? And shouting this stuff and they're terrified and their emotions are really high and they're they're shivering and shaking and, and Toto runs over to the side and he opens he pu- he pulls back this curtain and we see that the whole thing is an illusion and mm. that the wizard is a small frail old man behind working these gadgets and the wizard says pay no attention to that man behind the curtain and what I like about that example is how it's our attention that regulates mm. our experience that we yeah. can see this we at any time we engage with a fabricated or media experience, we know it's for the most part, and know is a is a broad term, but we can process information, we can access information that says this is not real or this is a mediated experience or right. I am in control here. Right. And at the same time, we can also process or access the information that says the the, the sensory information I'm receiving is meaningful, it's important, it's moving. When I see someone cry, I know how to respond to that mm. case. And what regulates our experience is our attention to one of those spaces over the other. Very good, so this, yeah. is a, this is a model by Ed Tan, who's currently in um, the University of Copenhagen. And uh, he's drawn on the dual process theory to to say that we, we have access to the, the emotional, meaningful, and the, the kind of... F- what does he call the executive space? This right. like art artifact version, and that what regulates is at our attention, and that we have we can only 
we have this like limited capacity in what we can pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And so the more emotional, the more explosion, the more meaningful, the more harrowing it is, the less space there is or less interesting it is to think of it as a fabricated experience. Right. But the truth is, at any moment, we flip between one to the other and we can use that paying attention to one over the other to regulate our experience mm-hmm. so that when the horror film gets too scary mm. we we try and focus on the fact that it's just tomato ketchup it's just a film it's just fake it's interesting yeah how we can do that it, it never really seems to go away yeah it's, it's there but it's just temporarily suspended it allows the space for that uh, for that immersion and it is a kind of a, a trance, a hypnotic state we go into when we watch a good film. It's a, it's a truly fascinating, meditative kind of a yeah. thing, isn't it? And what's so interesting, I think, particularly with, I mean, TVs have gotten bigger over the years and cinemas are st- still have big screens, but in the living room when you're watching the TV, particularly back when we were kids, the size of the TV in our field of vision relative to everything yeah. that's happening around it yeah. is such a very minor part of the scene. There can be background noise, people outside, so many yeah. things going on, but all of that gets excluded somehow. This gets amplified. We step into it as if it was a head-mounted display in some sense. Yeah, and there's some nice uh, neuro work by a colleague of mine, Matt Bezdek in Georgia Tech, and how he's looked at how... Um, how using suspenseful scenes from films, famous suspense films, narrows our attention, but neurologically, so that the parts of our brain that respond to those visual areas on the outside mm. are, are slowing down and shutting off because we're paying more attention yes. to this really dangerous or life-threatening situation the characters are in. Yeah, it's and the really horror nice. film example is, is a very clear illustration of that, yeah. but it is true, isn't it? Because you know the idea is in an evolutionary sense, if there's that lion or that tiger in front of one of our ancestors, we're not noticing the meadow, we're yeah, not noticing exactly, the birds, exactly. we're not noticing the stream. Yeah. Immediately this fills our field of view. Yeah. And the other thing is that extends to the storytelling point because, you know, from we understand our adrenal system when it's active, actually one of its functions, adrenaline, is it sort of shuts down that intellectual type thinking. Yes. <laughs> the frontal lobe is less to do in that moment. Yeah. We don't want to be thinking too much about it. We want to be a bit more responsive and reactive. So that helps, I suppose, that presence in that moment of really being with something. Yeah. But what's interesting about it is the teeth of the tiger, you know, being being sunk into your arm are not the, the best point for that to happen. It, it, seeing it would be would be a good point. But even seeing it, it may not necessarily attack you, but assuming it will is probably a good plan at that point. But even better, again, is if you can hear the rustle in, in, in the undergrowth and then make that assumption. So we can kind of see why the storytelling can become a problem at times, isn't it? Because we're very good at preempting things, right. which can be very good in some situations, but can lead to problems in others. Yeah, so there's work by Mara Notley, which says that that's exactly the function of storytelling. Is that, so um, again, I was reading this book by Lisa Feldman Barrett, and she's talking about how the brain's job is prediction, predicting, predicting, predicting. Mm. So that that's what it's always doing. And most of the time, our, we're even physiologically responding to a prediction so that our body will flood our bloodstream with adrenaline right, or glucose right. based on a prediction that hasn't happened yet and that we're good at it. And that Maren Oatley are saying that by processing these stories, even these um, fabricated worlds, mm-hmm. we're simulating the components of them and then we're learning kind of by proxy mm-hmm. that we're, they would say maybe... Uh, will be quicker to respond to the rustle in the in the grass. Yeah. If 
we've simulated that before if we've seen right. how others have responded to that rustle in the grass and you could argue yeah. that an irish man for the first time walking in some jungle <laughs> might not have any reason to think he should run from a rustle in the grass but if he's seen the story or heard the stories or and and that might be a story of an old wolf in Irish tales or right, it could be right. the TV show he saw yeah. on a, an Attenborough documentary. And so. of course he may in some cases run more because a local may know that well look this season is okay for that reason or okay. it's just is that's it, it really could go either point. way. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that that it's it's that's a really good point and that it shapes how uh, that yeah. Stupid tourists you know. Yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah I think um, it's a good point and it goes back to what we had said earlier how um, the problem with stories maybe is that it it only presents you with the it, at times they can present you with a situation without giving you all the tools to manage it. The self-fulfilling prophecy aspect of them I find is very interesting because if a person worries about something as you were saying a moment ago that doesn't to the degree that they're really present in those worries and they take them to be real experiences they're simulating in that moment and it's easy of course to see why that would have been useful for our ancestors those of them who would think about the journey ahead and imagine the risks on that journey would preempt them and prepare for them would of course yeah. be the, the, the they're the ancestors we have yeah, <laughs> we did yeah, the yeah. people who just said oh we'll go out and see what happens they're not our ancestors <laughs> so that, that 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 kind of looks after itself uh, yeah. from from a developmental point of view so the, the it's easy to see though um how when you get caught up in the thought of the worry because the body compared to the mind is a little slow it takes maybe milliseconds rather than you know very very nanoseconds to 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 make these responses happen to activate the adrenal system to to do whatever it needs to and because it preempts just to be prepared the problem is is previously we had that thought which concerned us now we're also having the physical feelings as well and that seems to add weight to the thought in yeah. some sense, which can really create quite a, a self-fulfilling prophecy in a feedback loop. It's as if while you're watching the horror film, somebody then starts shaking the couch from behind as right, well. Exactly. And you go, this isn't just on the screen. I'm yeah. actually feeling it in a tactile sense too. Yeah. It becomes more believable. That's Yeah, so one, one, a study that we conducted was to compare 2D and 3D film, and they were horror scenes. And what mm. I was interested in is this idea of space and depth where... If if you're watching if a scene from a horror film, um, there's threat and there's there's knives and monsters yeah. and that the idea of a physical space and depth where it may seem even more threatening. Yes, yeah. And that if the theory is right, then your phys- physiology should respond more to this depth version. Mm-hmm. And at the time, three D movies were out. Everyone was complaining that they didn't add anything extra, but I had mm. to pay more for my ticket and and that they were. And I felt like the film companies were only using it as a gimmick, so they never used 3D for any of the good films. Mm. That's changed in time since mm. then. So um, so we did this study, and we found that the people in the 3D condition had a significantly higher heart rate than those in the 2D condition, in mm. line with this theory, this idea mm. that the physiology is responding to this space and depth automatically. Right. And then we asked people outside uh, to just score on a Likert scale how much they... Um, they enjoyed it or how scared they were. And there was no differences between 2D and 3D in terms mm. of how much they reported. And it just shows that mismatch again that I could say, had I just used the physiological measures, I'd be saying, oh yeah, the 3D is better. But from the filmmaker's point of view, 
better is you want someone to come out and say, I liked that more than the people in the other version. Right. And so there can be this mismatch and this interpretation of the physiological and the people in that case uh, didn't see that physiological response as more... Um, Got you. But they did rate it as more realistic. Interesting. Whatever that Very interesting. may mean. It's a difficult thing, isn't it, to, to try and discuss and to try and control for when you're studying it because it, clearly there's many different use cases w- when you're making a film and it's it's easy to imagine circumstances where it would make one hell of a difference and others where it wouldn't. I mean, even something as simple as when colour film came on the scene and yeah. obviously The Wizard of Oz is an interesting reference on that point, yeah. having both, but the use of colour... I mean, if you were to have done an experiment like that back then where you have colour and black and white and see what the difference is... Yeah. I can imagine cases where it would have made a difference. I can imagine others where it wouldn't really. You'd have to control for the novelty factors as well. Yeah. But, you know, there are some cases where that's going to really make a difference. If you just have a documentary with a couple of people chatting, if yeah. they're in a kind of a dark gray room and they're wearing black and white suits and they're talking, to hell with color vision. Yeah. It's really going to depend. Right. And so I'm doing some research with a colleague of mine, Kathleen Ballant, who's in um, Tilburg University at the moment. And our, our work is to explore the way in which these uh, formal features, the form that it comes in mm. can contribute to character engagement specifically but other parts like enjoyment and and uh, yeah. that sort of stuff and um we've recently uh conducted some research just taking quentin tarantino scenes and we've uh we're able to code them for the shot scale the movement the color and brightness the volume sound and we're trying to model the ways in which these elements can predict how much you engage with the narrative or not. Mm -hmm. It's ongoing. We're still analyzing the results, but it looks like some of those features are related to the way in which we engage with the narrative. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I wonder what Tarantino would think of that. Any of that information? I'm sure we'd have to censor whatever. Yeah. So this relates to that point of the amount of content that's manifest in front of us then. So uh, as you were saying, that can mean a few different ways. It can be how big or how small the screen is. It can yeah. be whether it's wrapped around you or whether it's in front of you, who else is there, what, what what's given in a given moment. Um, probably the simple ways of thinking about it is that book versus film distinction that you talked right. about before. Can you talk uh, a bit about that, I suppose, the degree to which something is given to us in one shape or form and the degree to which you are bringing it to the table? The the problem, obviously, and this relates, which we can talk about a little bit more as well in a moment, is, is learning as well, because there seems to be a sense in which sometimes you want the person to do the work. Even even in a very visual film, it's it's a common technique to you know pan towards something, but then stop and let the imagination continue, and you know what's just over there. Right, that's used as a technique. Yeah. Sometimes we want to take that to an extreme and say we're not even going to make a film; we're going to just write a book about this. Right, yeah. that's an extreme version of that. Other times, we're going to blatantly show you every bit of it. Yeah, what so, do you think about so that? So I think I think the book film thing are ways in which people um, can categorize. A range of different uh, features of those media, and that in the and that they can, they can um, be have more diversity within those media than between them. Mm. So, for example, um, mm. P 
people sometimes think of watching film as a passive process compared to reading a book is a bit more active, right? But but it depends. So, for example, when it comes to immediate emotion regulation of something that's scary, yeah. perhaps a film might be a little more triggering with the visual processing. Yes. Or a social cognition of reading someone's face in a book, it might be described. So that if we look at the if we look at the differences between not necessarily the more um, obvious physical characteristics of these two media, but instead the things they typically do psychologically, mm. right? So the presentation of scenarios, it's more, it's, it's more difficult in a film to access someone's thoughts. Yeah. But in theory, a film that could successfully achieve that mm. should be comparable to a book that was able to present the thoughts of okay. the character. So, it's important uh, to mention, as you all too well know, John, it's, that it's the way in which these experiences are presented and, mm -hmm. and used that can bring about different sorts of skills. Yeah. And, and, and related to that, then we have this choice that people make so that I've often, and you may have had the same experience where I just want to watch a sitcom tonight because I'm exhausted. I don't want to watch a big thinking film so that we do choose. Yeah, I, 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 I find myself on Netflix looking for bad things to watch because I <laughs> yes. don't want to have to commit. Yeah. And I'm afraid to watch the thing I really want to watch because I don't feel. I'm exactly the same. I'm yeah. holding off on a, on a series at the moment because, yeah. uh, because I'm just not ready for it yes yet. exactly you know, too yeah, busy yeah. and work and stuff <laughs> so that i think and i don't know i think maybe uh, presume it's universal the people unconsciously regulate their experience by choosing these different media mm. and that people who prefer to read over uh, watching film are probably engaging in that sort of a task mm. that they prefer all the things that come with reading generically mm. but that's not to say that if they found the bad book or the one that doesn't suit them they'd prefer to watch that film that they like what is is happening as well as technology becomes more ubiquitous because again reading was sort of the only thing available at certain points that was you know the, the virtual reality of of its time and still is it's a phenomenally rich experience um so so one point is as technology becomes more available and people are traveling and they're busy and they're maybe you know reading less in some ways what what happens with reading but the other the other kind of related point to that is i have an interesting experience that when i read and i really enjoy reading the problem is i enjoy reading to the point that i lose contact with the text and it form it makes me free associate not not irrelevant topics but very relevant topics to what i'm reading so i'll spend ages in a paragraph which makes reading difficult for me right what's right. handy about film is it paces me and yeah. it brings me yeah, along yeah, yeah, with yeah. it so i have to kind of keep up in that sense yeah that's i, I it's really interesting but the, um i guess uh that uh that, I, I can't. I think that's mo that, that's more about trying to find find those those ways in which you're engaging with that media yourself and, and the function they're serving f for you. That's why I like listening because somebody looks after the pacing for me. Yeah. and disciplines me to stop my imagination. Yeah, and then, but and then I think it's not to say that books don't. It'd probably be less common that would happen in a book, but there will be books that there's there's a. Uh, there's shorter chapters. It's true. It's there's, true. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Paragraph breaks. There's stream of consciousness writing. There, you know, these different ways in which people can employ that same stuff. And how do you see writing then developing? Because I know a lot of people, including 
podcasting becoming popular for this reason, who are saying that, you know, the readership of their books is so minimal. The people who listen to their speeches are so much higher. It's a function, of course, just how we structure our lives to some degree. Yeah. What, what is the future of the, the written word in some sense versus other media, do you think? It's hard to say, and it's probably... Rightly or wrongly, perhaps wrongly, I'm less interested in it. There's a lot of discourse around the ways in which mm. different technologies are changing us and shaping us and social media and video games and virtual reality and that we're losing other aspects, maybe like reading. Yeah. And that it's true that that is happening. I think I'm... I'm not sure. I can't say whether it's good or bad or neutral. I kind of feel like it's something that we just have to deal with. But I'm less worried about it because when it comes to these sorts of things, I kind of trust humanity. I trust the masses a bit more than most people do, maybe. <laughs> that like, And maybe I shouldn't. And maybe... Uh, but I kind of think... You know this idea that we've been through it before with other things, like um, the calculator was going to destroy our ability to kind of uh, perform maths. Um, in the same way, I'm happy to largely let those things happen in, but that's coming from a space where I'm trying to say that the function of stories has always been central, that mm -hmm. here we are as humans doing our best to use technology to consume stories mm -hmm. in a more efficient way and that for me that's the important thing um, i know that's controversial to say but it's interesting and it really yeah. just relates to technology generally it's it's a huge question yeah. i think i i mentioned it before david krakauer of the santa fe institute um makes a just an interesting distinction uh, between uh, complementary and competitive cognitive artifacts the idea being uh, that there are some things that do create a reliance on them, I suppose, like the example of the calculator. You don't have the calculator, you you can't do it anymore. Yeah. And then he contrasts it to something like a, an abacus, which is uh, complementary rather than competitive, like yeah, the calculator, yeah, because yeah, yeah. apparently expert abacus users internalize the abacus. And so even without the abacus, they could still use the abacus. Yes. That, I, that's an interesting distinction, I think, to think about as we yeah, move into Yeah, that is the, interesting. And I think one of the... One of the reasons why I think psychologists need to be doing more research in the area of media and entertainment is because there are lay understandings of the functions these things are serving. Yes. People talk about distraction or that I just don't want to think about it, I'll put on a show. Yeah. When yeah. I, and so when we know the function of the calculator and the abacus, we can distinguish between what they're serving yeah. us and that I'm not sure we properly understand the function or the ways in which people are using different types of media so that if we're using them for this social simulation mm -hmm. theory or mm -hmm. to learn emotion regulation skills or yeah. to develop our ethical, social or, or kind of political morals, um, these different functions that we could be using, it means that some may be more or less complementary or yes, what was the competitive, other, competitive yeah. exactly. Yeah. Absolutely, and that may have important implications in certain uses. Um, how can we think about the degree to which we retain the effects of media experiences, how they, how they, how they shape us in one shape or form? Because, again, there seem to be a lot of potential use cases. I mean, you, you, you could say that, you know, uh, even from a therapeutic perspective, that it's enough to watch a film 
to have it make you feel happy or to cheer you up in some way and that in turn will be a benefit that's retained and brought into the days weeks ahead there seems to be some other sense in which you'd say well we'd want more reinforcement than that any advertiser would tell you that you know you'd look for emotional intensity of the experience but also repetition you know to really drive and reinforce the point home maybe to try and integrate the behavior in some way um so th- th- there is that sense of of uh, of retaining the effects of a, of an experience uh, in in some shape or form but that's an emotional effect from a kind of a skill training point of view then it would seem interactivity would seem to matter rather than just an emotional effect that's brought in retaining the effects of of an experience yeah i hadn't I hadn't thought about it much I, th- there is some research i'd love to do around i've been thinking of it for a while about the idea of what makes a favorite film a favorite film mm. when people can still feel these really strong emotions towards something that they've seen a thousand times and, yes and they, yeah and they know every line and, and and they're still it's very much a part of their identity yeah and um i think there's also towards an answer to your question is the role of how we tell stories about the stories that we've mm. watched so mm. that there's the there's the there's the fact that I have never seen The Wire and no one can understand how I haven't seen The Wire. So there's this like social movement to make sure that I've seen this show that I can and I really want to. But that, you know, you, you they come up so much in conversation, mm-hmm. these stories that we love and that when I binge watch a show and it, sometimes it's almost the only thing yeah, that's on yeah, my mind, yeah. I'm, I actually find myself like agitated looking for someone who has also seen this show. Yes, And then yeah. you, you find them yeah. and, and you think, great, I can talk about this. And what you talk about is kind of just reliving it with someone else. Yeah. I think you're looking for ways in which to deconstruct this, the the story. I've started to notice if I rewatch things that I loved, I'm calling it my second watch mm-hmm. idea, that I love them just as much. And if not a little bit more, because it's almost like it's helpful to know the, the story arc, to, yeah. to watch it play out again. And that if we are using media yeah. f- for these reasons, then deconstructing them together, watching them again, talking about them mm. are ways to retain the effects. But, but like with any learning, it's, it's probably doing that and then revisiting. Yeah. Yeah. And it should be the ones that have moved you or the ones who have made a difference or the ones that have challenged you as yeah. well. The likes of the work of, of Kolb and experiential learning and a, l- a lot of those processes tend to have after it a, a kind of a debrief of some sort, some sort of integration and then follow through and, you know, yeah. layering it in, in, in some sort of way. So there does seem to be something yeah. to that. I guess we're looking for that. Yeah. But but there also seems to be a point to, to, to also be said that um, I, I think it was, was it Zig Ziglar, the motivational speaker, who said you know people sometimes complain that motivation wears off after seminars and he says yes he says it's like bathing you need to do it every day yes (laughs) so you know sometimes that's fair enough or they have the poker and the fire example too that you take it out it's as hot as the fire but the longer you keep it out it goes cold yeah so there kind of is a sense that some things in our life i like this concept are constructive and emotional diet Right. That just as we have a nutritional one and we take it for granted that we're going to spend a good bit of money and time in our life on food. Yeah. And we don't fight that too much. Yeah. We plan around it. We work around it. It actually becomes a cultural thing. We meet over food. We, we do a number yeah. of things like that. That emotionally speaking, that we can 
kind of consciously choose the media we consume, I suppose, as we would a diet. And it's not that it needs to last forever. The effect of one good film, if it does, all, all, albeit, but probably no food is good enough to last forever in its nutritional effect. But we can have these experiences. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree. I think I... When when it was interesting when you described the emotional diet because mm. I think that phrase sounds a little bit like the the rational construal of emotion. So you the it's the it 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 sounds and it's my own thing that like it's the meaning diet, but that's not what you mean. I think mm. there's a physiological exactly response that the these things in the now regulate our emotional experiences yeah. and um. And that's that's a that's a really important thing. I guess everything that I had been saying before that was was this. You know, I talked about your process. It was this rational yes. conscious. But you're right that there's a physiological or automatic, immediate way in mm-hmm. which they can. They're kind of like the equivalent of turning it off and turning it back on again yes. with the system. Yes. Stop the ruminating thoughts. Like like focus on something that's not yourself. Yeah. Completely different experience. And um, I think that's some of the argument behind how mindfulness can be such a powerful technique as well but just like a diet or like a a salad you're not going to lose you're not going to be healthy after eating a salad once it's got to be like the bath you got to keep doing it yeah it it, it can be i mean obviously you're calling it an emotional diet so that might emphasize the word emotion but it's probably as an emotional as a nutritional diet is yeah which is to say that sure there's a feeling of satisfaction that comes but it doesn't uh, resist logic in any sense a nutritional diet is inherently logical too yeah there's a complementarity i i should say i fully agree it's an emotional diet my Mm. My observation was that I I did the thing that I I mentioned Lisa Feldman Barrett talks about how we think about emotions isn't necessarily yeah. the way they they her model presents yeah. them as and the idea of the emotional diet brought me to this different place but it it, it, it is an that, emotional that's diet. part of the problem isn't it I think we do tend to split these things and they're very useful to split to discuss from from certain angles but. Yeah really I, I, I like to use this example of if you think of a, a jam jar as being the logic and the jam as being the feeling yes. you want both yes. if you just have the jar and it's empty what's the point in that yeah, exactly. if you have the jam but no jar it's all over your arm and right. it's a sticky mess it's yeah. just emotion but nothing to constrain it yes. but they don't need to be enemies of each other yeah, you can no, certainly exactly. support and assist each yeah. other and in some ways in 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 ways of more social or cultural practice they're not different things yeah, at all that's they're right the, we just get on with it yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're the thing you buy in the shop you know the, yeah. and uh, separating them isn't always as as useful as you're saying so yeah. we've talked a bit about media maybe, maybe let's talk about some of the different types of media that are out there we've sure. we've have an interest i think in a background in film that we yeah. each have but uh of course computer games are just this right. huge aspect of this thing, and yeah. then extending well not extending beyond that they've been around for quite a while but but now related to that virtual reality and then mixed reality and augmented reality yeah. so maybe maybe just go to the computer games first because again that'll be something that i think most people will be familiar with in some shape or form yeah how can we think about those i remember you know people i remember somebody who didn't really play gaming back when i was a kid saying to me you know it was like black and white games as a good ping pong on screen saying what's the appeal of that yeah, that doesn't yeah, make yeah, any yeah, sense yeah. but of course there is can be a huge appeal to, to to that now graphics have come along now the budgets for so many uh, video games you know exceed motion pictures from a production point of view it's not as obvious that they're necessarily different or separate art forms there's voice actors there's 
what's going on with computer games? Yeah, well, so it's a huge industry and there's a lot of money in it. And I think, I think the development of computer games may partly be about trying to be as broadly interesting to as many as many different functions right we talked about yeah. the function of media yeah. and that perhaps uh, the black and white uh, square moving across the screen is it, it, just like the fidget spinner which <laughs> which took out that it's this simple very straightforward um, way to capture your attention and shift it away from uh, whatever else you're not paying attention mm-hmm. to um, but by taking that same feature and then adding in all these characters, all this narrative, mm-hmm. all the the kind of ways in which people can build an identity around mm-hmm. it, explicitly, more explicitly allowing people to link what they're doing on the screen with their real life or with their identity or with the groups that they're around. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives more choice, more options, and then, of course, there's more value in it. It strikes me, though, that even some of those earlier simple games, and there's, you know, there's a real retro movement in computer games at the moment, too, that likes the pixely kind of stripped-down yeah. approach, that there was a way, though, that we'd kind of reify upon those things. The, the alien on the screen would only be a few pixels, but it would be a symbol. And right. then everything we know about aliens and feel about aliens, we'd layer on top of that algebraically. That'd be the X. Exactly. It would represent everything we feel about aliens. Yeah. And it can be a surprisingly deep experience uh, which somebody else mightn't get understandably right, if they yeah. don't have that yeah and that's that idea i was saying about this uh, situation model we build these stories we build events we build a model of what's going on and we can do it based on so little information mm. because imagine if your brain is a system that works on looking through a hedge where it has to predict right it's mostly yeah, predicting what's yeah. going on it's trying to figure out what that movement was it's default position i probably shouldn't use default given that there's a mode network but what it does it's brain the the brain's main goal is just to predict based on little information yeah more information is helpful it Mm -hmm. can make more elaborate and rich predictions so that these and and sometimes there's that idea that showing the not showing the villain in the film is scarier than showing them because you're putting in all the worst traits. So the, yeah. your creation of yeah. what's scary and worse is, is, is worse than what they could show. Um, okay, so, it a deeply personalized experience then because 10 people in the room may layer 10 different things on the same symbol. Right, exactly. Mm. And, and, and then there's, at the flip side of that, there's all this fear around... Um, presentation in video games of really highly realistic disgusting wounds and injuries and and violence Mm. where it's highly descriptive and visual and realistic Mm. and uh people are rejecting it and and disgusted by it and i'm not trying to make a point that one is better than the Mm. other but i'm only thinking out loud here that it's interesting that the flip side can be so much scarier can be so much worse it can do yeah and there's a kind of an uncanny valley effect of of types isn't it because when uh, computer games are using really well designed assets and beautiful graphics they take a risk because they need to really get it right now on the uncanny valley typically when people talk about it they think about it visually whereby it has to look very real or has to look not real and in the middle is weird and eerie yeah but you know as i think many theorists say it's not just about the visual in so many respects you gotta get it right or else not really try and we're happy either way uh actually playing it safe sometimes can be to be simple in some ways and let people layer onto it in some way 
And uh, part of my master's research I spoke about earlier was using a technique of visual adaptation where if I show you a whole load of faces for a long time where the Mm. eyes have been slowly moved apart, they start to look normal. So we update our thresholds of of what's acceptable. Mm. And then you see a face where the eyes haven't been adjusted. And to you, they look really close together. Mm. So the idea of the uncanny valley may start to wash away a little bit if you've been playing the games for a long time or you get yeah. to know these people because now they they're they do look realistic for, for a long enough experience yeah. and um yeah and so it can kind of fill in the and realism there. and narrative based too realism is so interesting in terms of the context that it's set up in another example i think i've used before is if you're watching a vampire film and the vampire is able to fly no problem that's okay that's part of the story the moment the werewolf starts flying you get very upset (laughs) yes uh, yeah it's interesting yeah and that um i i this is that this is this idea of the dimensions of of realism that i think are interesting i think uh, at times they can challenge us and challenge simple things yeah very simple things that we want to take for granted or that the rules of the game are x and if you change that rule yes. then that means anything is possible now i need to know what those rules are if i'm going to engage with this experience because a critic from the outside would say yeah that the fantasy is just uh, you know it's just imagination anything goes but i don't think there's any more stringent bunch of people than fantasy yeah uh, devotees yeah. isn't it of of yeah. breaking rules and yeah. consistency it, it may be that i suppose because they're stepping outside of the norms they have to hold on even more tightly to the norms they have right. isn't it to, to constrain the story because right. an unconstrained story is no narrative at all yeah i had this idea though that um around the pop around the time of the popularity of game of thrones was also downton abbey and the wire and yeah. uh, and it felt like what they all had in common was that those three in particular um it was a world we weren't as used to. It mm. had its own language. It had its own rules. It had its own cultural hierarchies and ways of being and that we had to learn it so that it's so yeah. difficult to remember all the characters' names or know what's going on. Mm-hmm. But we do it. And by the time we do, now it we're in agreement that this is, you've presented a world with rules that we can... Yes. And, and the rules are important because I said how important it is for us to make predictions. Exactly. We're always trying to predict so that, that rules are necessary for that. I know Alfred Hitchcock has that quote, don't confuse the audience. A confused audience is not emoting. Yeah. Now, yeah. I'm not 100% sure because I know confusion can play an emotional yeah, well, role too. That's right, But you yeah. can get where he's going with that though. That, that seems to tap into that idea, that difference between two ways in which we can engage with entertainment. There's that like emotional, engaged, completely... Yeah, you drop you know, out. Yeah. yeah, and that the confused uh, viewer is looking to the man behind the curtain. Right, right. So right. he's paying attention to it as an artifact. Why do they do this? But that's not necessarily the case, like you say, with some that um, a colleague of mine, Miklos Kiss in Grod- uh, in Groningen mm-hmm. is doing work around puzzle films mm. and this idea that like things like Memento and um, oh, Looper and, mm. and these sorts of films that are set to challenge you so that you'll realize a, a kind of an interesting quirk in the story. It may be that word confusion has to be unpacked a bit because there seem to be different types of confusion, isn't it? There seems to be a confusion which is still very much consistent with the story. Yeah. I believe I'm there, I get the narrative, but I'm confused within the context of that yeah. about what's happening within it as opposed to I just don't know what the film's trying to do. Yeah, and the difference. Some people might link that with the idea of flow where you've got the yeah. right amount of challenge. Yeah. Right, that makes it engaging. 
So can you weigh in relating to our points about realism and then ongoing enduring effects of things? We're talking about video games and, of course, one of the the almost boring of the stage debates that's been going on endlessly and perpetually that seems to come up again and again and again. And there seem to be two different opinions on it, which constantly have been at war without any perfect resolution, is usually simplified along the lines of do video games cause violence, something simple like that. That strikes me in, in, in this particular time to be a very, very simplified question, particularly because what video games are, of course, is is just anything but simple that it's yeah. like saying films i mean it's 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 that broad how could we for the listener who's interested in the answer to that question what what, what could we say about that um so i think there's some good research being done but the problem that's holding it back as you say are that it's created these two camps and actually the the biggest pe- people who are publishing in this area I can't, there's a controversial statement, but the research has come more about themselves, that they're more locked into their ideas now where I'm not sure that they can ever meet halfway in their debate. And as you say, this this idea that um, uh, violent video games, do they cause aggression, yes or no? Instantly I'm saying, well, I think the better question is, when might they right. c- cause aggression? And the boring answer to that would be the fact that if the masses are playing these games... And, and they're not going out killing everybody, then the exceptional circumstances may, it, it, it may be difficult to say it was the video game that caused that. Yeah. Uh, when we talk about these simple ideas of cause and effect. Uh, so let's appreciate that then, that, uh, it, it, that there's, at, at the very least there's an interaction effect or, or that something where a game might be a catalyst. Mm to a vulnerability someone has already perhaps or, mm-hmm. or, or, or a way in which they've engaged with stuff. Um, and I think like the boring answer is I think we need more research that recognizes that, that more complex research, more yeah. research with game designers and uh, therapists and, and, and uh, from the human sciences and behavioral sciences. We need theoretical models of video game play that are, more complex right 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 and um i think until we have those we're left with these research studies that have operationalized aggression as how much spicy sauce you'll put into someone's drink and and then they'll they'll extrapolate that you're more aggressive as a result yeah yeah um the other area of research in this that seems kind of promising is not about whether video games cause aggressive behaviors but the lasting effects of media games on thoughts and so the extent to which violent video games um produce these uh, what was the term like automatic aggressive cognitions right and that i think in those cases, uh, we may or may not have a situation where someone can regulate those experiences. And it's so complex, isn't it? And I think you're absolutely, I agree fully that the problem is a, a massive oversimplification of an incredibly sophisticated area. Because yeah. as we really look at the topic, it's as complex as life itself, the, the media yeah. that we're using. If, in fact, even if there was a very simple apparent cause-effect relationship between playing a violent video game and then violence, 
that could have evoked something that was very much already there that was you know going yeah. to come out anyway in some shape or form a book could have done it conversation could have added anything yeah. can be a trigger uh, you know somebody saying uh, it's nice to see you today what do you mean by that maybe you're feeling bad yeah anything can be a trigger in that sense yeah. very very complex yeah and in a lot of psychological problems uh, the extreme forms of maybe uh, delusional thoughts anxiety emotional yeah. problems um and and clinicians will often th think about the fact that someone might have a genetic dis uh, vulnerability or disposition i mean yeah. and uh some other situation but then and then there's this uh maybe a stressor or something mm -hmm. and that in that situation i don't think it makes sense to try and protect the world from stressors sure, right sure but we don't want to minimize the role they play in that particular person's yeah. uh yeah kind of state of uh, illness and so I'm not sure the best way is to regulate highly or harshly these video games. Um, but we can encourage best practice around the way in which we engage with them in the same way we might with stressors. You would sure. ne you'd never tell someone, you know, we tell each other to take breaks, you know, to, to um, eat well, sleep well, yeah. make sure you have a social support. Sure, you know, sure. these That's sorts true. of everyday things should be protective around the negative effects that any video game could ever bring about in someone. Yeah. And that perhaps video games are of the nature that they're more likely to make someone disconnect from social support or spend a longer time without taking breaks mm. and, and might increase vulnerability in a little way but that's not necessarily just the violent ones yeah um, something that, that, that i think frustrates me a lot sometimes in in research is the kind of the operational uh, description of what is a violent video game to begin with because it seems to leave out as we've been discussing the kind of constructive role right. of approaching these things yes i know games like uh Fallout or Skyrim or these types of games are probably the best example of it where there's a very particular narrative and you, you really are taking a, a good or a bad role and it can get ambiguous at times but it's interesting how you know if out of character they force you to do something you really don't want to do what I find myself doing is actually just creating a story to supplement what they're forcing me to do to justify the right. action. Not to justify the bad action, but yeah. to say, okay, now let me just modify the script of the game a little yes. bit. I have to save another person in order to do this because I don't want to do this. Otherwise, yeah. that's against my character. Yeah, and it's such a... Is that violent? Because, of course, you know, it, yeah. it may be protective behavior in some cases. So, complex. That... that that approach that you're describing seems like such a powerful tool is to shape the mode in which we engage with these things yeah. and the way and the the depth at which we see them as meaningful or not meaningful mm. or how much they to us represent something that could yes. happen in real life and that your approach to regulating that seems like such a simple tool that could be fully built into any video game automatically mm -hmm. you could press a button on a game and all they have to do is replace the soldier's hair mm. with big curly clown wigs as a visual reminder that this right. is just a game. <laughs> now, just off the top of my head, I mean, but there's also more yeah. narrative ways in which yeah. you can do this. And um, and all of a sudden, it's almost like uh, an ironic way to to engage with this uh, this violent and, and the regulation of those modes. Uh, if they're a source 
for a particular player to be aggressive, mm -hmm. then that might be a potentially problematic way to engage with the game. Absolutely. But there's no guarantee that the game itself defines that. Yeah, exactly. We we bring so much to the table. Yeah. A, a potentially peaceful gamer experience. We could be imagining just a road with cars passing by that those people are on their way to commit violence and we're just not reporting it. Yeah. Isn't it? We can yeah. make anything exactly. any way through, exactly. through the way we now, approach it. Having said that, though, we have talked about earlier the skill of these storytellers mm. in their ability using things like formal features of film yeah. to have a greater control over the way in which an audience can in, can engage you as a director your goal is to make sure they know the story you're telling mm. when you're really just showing and they're really good at that so if we have these game designers who have the same abilities yes, the same true. power that's we true. need them to be ethical in the in the way so this this brings that. in the role of interactivity in computer games i think are, are a good bridge from roughly film to to virtual reality and various other variations of it yeah how do you think in, and how have you thought because i think it's been very interesting for you i'm sure as it has for me to have come from that film background to have the interest you have and then to have this new kind of renaissance in virtual mixed augmented realities at the moment what's that been like for you meeting what's going on at the moment and how have you kind of bridged your interests into that? How has it changed things or kept them the same? Yeah, no, I feel a little challenged by it because my students are really interested in it. They're far more interested in gaming than <laughs> movies. And yeah. I, more and more, maybe the Netflix idea and TV is interesting them. But, um, and, and I remember only really playing two games when I was younger and it was like Mario Brothers on the Super Nintendo and I remember playing the first Tomb Raider game mm. and in both cases I played them like extremely I played mm. them a lot so I can access that idea of yeah. of them of of being like fully consumed by the interactivity in a game and they're quite narrative games the two I mentioned anyway mm. um which meant I had the characters and the story and the all that stuff but as they change as they develop um I have to make more efforts to know that world and mm. to engage with it a little bit more and well, i'm working well, that's with that's a daily practice at the moment yeah i know i, I but i but i i am um, i haven't been as much but i have a a phd student who's 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 uh working in this area and keeping me um oh God, up, yeah. on my toes but um the the other thing to say though is i still maintain that my contribution to the work if i'm right means that it's the psychological function that these things are serving that is is common mm -hmm. around the media and that, mm -hmm. that that there's definitely a different emphasis from games versus uh books yeah or or people who um listen to you know classical music as their form of entertainment sure. these are these are serving different functions but i think the approach to it i can contribute to Absolutely, and it does seem like it. Um, I'll, I'll put some links in anyway for any listeners who aren't particularly familiar with the kinds of technology that we're talking about. Yeah. But if you, it, it seems that if we talk about virtual reality, mixed reality, augmented reality, at least there's kind of two levels to talk about this. One is in a more general perceptual sense, in which case, you know, virtual reality really is has always been the case to one degree or another. I mean, on, on a very deep level, it's just part of being human to virtualize in, in some shape or form, to simulate, to, to think ahead to things. 
Um, but, you know, even more locally, things like books and things we've talked about before are a kind of a virtual experience. So we can think about it that way, or we can think about it more in terms of its current manifestation, the likes of head-mounted displays, different types of, of augmentation where we layer things onto the world in some shape or form. Um, as you take the the world, I suppose, of, of the screen or the, the kind of the rectangles that we've become accustomed to, where typically our games or our films were on, and then as you move into these immersive wraparound experiences that have more degrees of interactivity, what is the effect of that? We used to have this thing, we're sitting in a seat looking at this thing if we're in the cinema. Now all of a sudden we're wandering around worlds, we're interacting. I know this is all happening. This is an ongoing conversation yeah. at the moment, but what are your initial observations? So, yeah, my initial observation is it's been it's been easier for me to engage with this world given how recent and um, quickly it's been yeah, and how yeah. user-friendly and accessible the whole world is and mm. how it's much part of all our discourse. Mm. So I found myself to be a lot more involved in this. And... Um, on a on a very basic level one of the things i can clearly say which is is that more than any other um media it is obviously immersive but physiological it right, is right tapping directly into our automatic responses mm-hmm. and we talked about excuse me those two different ways in which we engage with entertainment experiences mm-hmm. and this one Imagine I described how uh, Doherty sees the wizard and because he's exciting, she might not notice the man behind the curtain. Yeah, This is like hiding that guy behind the curtain. He's n- not behind a curtain. He's off somewhere else. And this is a completely engaging, attention-grabbing yes. experience. So that really, if it wasn't for the weight of the headset mm-hmm. on, you, on, your, on your head, yeah, yeah. Um, there's, there's, you know... Y- you could quickly feel like you're in there. Um, the technology is still a little bit behind from this idea of a complete holodeck immersive room, but it's not far behind it, and that's happening soon. Mm. And, um, yeah, so I think they're powerful. Mm. And I think it's important to quickly identify as best we can mm. the appropriate ways to maximize the positive gains from that the power of those so while we could easily play the card of saying let's see where this goes and to a very real extent we are going to have to wait and see where this goes because there's a lot happening as you say it's happening very quickly yeah Uh, however at the same time we have an opportunity at the moment because we're well placed and somebody like you with your background is extremely well placed to be a futurist to some extent here and god knows if anybody can kind of look ahead and say well you know, where might this take us? Where do we want it to take us? Where do we not want it to take us? It's you, because you're you're passionate about this. You've been looking at media for, you know, a substantial amount of time. I'm sure your entire life, really. Right. Um, if, if you look ahead, and, you know, if you imagine you could teleport back to the, the, the beginning of film, really, as a medium, and kind of maybe, you know, you give some advice then. But we have that opportunity now, I suppose. We have the benefit of certain media and art form behind us to give us some knowledge. But we also then can kind of look ahead and say, where might this go? What are some of the lessons we might want to learn? Yeah. What, what do we want and what do we not want, do you think, from some of these technologies? Right. What advice do we want to give the future? I tend... It's silly. I, I I have all sorts of ideas about how I agree we should shape this. At this time now, we have an opportunity yeah. to make sure that this is 
um, this is done in a in a, a way that is human centered. Um, I also have this like objectivity about it through my training, where I don't necessarily want to hold on to things for the sake of or stopping progress for the sake yeah, of it. Sure. So I'm 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 stuck between these different ideas. Mm. Um, and then, so for a, a friend of mine, we were talking about this idea of the ancestor uh, simulation idea, where we're all actually it makes, uh, it makes more statistical or or kind of statistical sense for us to be part of a simulation um as as, as a society or as a humans mm-hmm. than it does not to be right that, that that given that the amount of uh aliens that are out there or, or races and that it might make more sense that we're part of the simulation is this uh nick ballstrom's right it, yeah right and so um we're discussing this and and i think i, I felt myself a little bit kind of saying well, that simulation would have to be so elaborate and so rich and so realistic to account for all the experiences that we have mm-hmm. that I'm not sure it affects me in any way yes. differently, yes. right? Yeah. And that I and that you know, someone might say, "What if like it was the Truman Show type theme, right?" And you found out mm-hmm. that like no one you've ever met was really real, real at mm-hmm. all. And part of me is saying, "Well." Given my interest in this idea of realism and how mm. we're all just simulations in my head anyway, yeah. that like I'm not sure. I feel like it makes too much of a difference. Yeah. Um. Of course it would if I found out. But but taking that argument, um, uh, my friend replied and said, um, I used to think that about the Matrix. Like, what's the, why does everyone want to leave the Matrix? <laughs> <laughs> why don't they just stay in those vats hooked up to the wire and just live their life out? And yeah, I was like, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think that's kind of the idea. I say all this kind of implying that, that that's possibly direction this is all going. And I wish I could say it wasn't, but like, yeah, I just, um, I hope the transition to that period is just an easy one. <laughs> Isn't it weird, though, how much intention matters in this? Yeah. Because I don't mean to speak for everyone here, but I think what we all want is to take ourselves out of the matrix and then put herself back in again, but on yeah, her own terms, isn't grade, it? Yes, and we exactly. may choose exactly the same experience we were in before, yes. but you want to know I loaded it. It's not yeah. the machine loaded me into it. Now that you say that, I, they say that um, these, um, oh God, when uh, I don't even have the facts, so it could be an urban legend, but yeah. that these um, companies in the States that were making these um, powdered breads and cakes, oh, yeah. they... Uh, they could have put powdered egg into it too, but they said, no, 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 we'll tell people they have to add an egg because that way they felt like they were actually cooking. Well, I heard that before, right. yeah, sense <laughs> yeah. of participation. Yeah. Right, and I, I, imagine, know, I yeah. imagine the same thing being like, um, you know, yeah. let's, yeah. let's yeah. let people feel like they're controlling this virtual reality a little bit. Well, in The Matrix, that's the description of why there's suffering in The Matrix. You yeah. know, apparently the original Matrix didn't have it, but actually people resisted it. Yeah. It actually was necessary to make it stick to right. some degree. So if you could engage yeah, more exactly yeah so, in that sense it seems like that's probably the way uh, if we've looked forward there if you look back at all your learning you've obviously been on a, a very interesting journey um if you kind of aggregate it all together and kind of look for some key learning that stands out for you maybe something that's just at the, the fore of your mind that stands out for you has been kind of important that you've taken from your work on a, on a kind of a greater level a meta level what key learning do you think stands out for you? Um, the key thing that has worked for me 
is an interdisciplinary approach, which we've talked about. Mm. But the idea of calling on the knowledge and expertise of others and and uh, and properly synthesizing it with our own expertise. The problem with that is that sort of work goes slower. We all have to learn each other's yeah. language. Yeah. Um, it's it doesn't often uh, prove as fruitful as as kind of working in your own uh, little box. Yeah. But um. Related to that then is, as I've said already, is this focus on the tools we're using and mm. what they mean to try and have some complexity about the way in which we capture experience. If all of this is about me as a psychologist trying to figure out how emotions work, how attention works, then it's about saying, let's try and capture the richness of this mm-hmm. in multiple measures, in multiple ways, without reducing it, but holding on to the learning that's traditionally come from the reductionist approach like the reductionist approach gives us answers yeah now let's try and retain that but let's make them more meaningful um so i think that's what has come from my work it's this shift towards the measures we're using Mm. uh this discussion around the way in which we conduct research it's a a very nice point that multidisciplinary point what i'm imagining as you're describing it is a film set because you know imagine saying no we're not going to do this in a multidisciplinary right. way yeah you know it, it just ceases to become even thinkable yeah. not, not only not possible but not even possible to think about right it, it just has to be at its very core yeah and it doesn't mean that you know the sound person won't have a particular emphasis that they'll reduce it down to and you yeah. know a lighting technician will have their particular priorities and they will to some degree ignore the others because they need to focus on what they do yeah but still there's a gestalt isn't it when those people come together and you right. know create something incredible which couldn't exist without the sum of those parts exactly exactly um, and I think, like I said, it can be slower work and it can mean that you're halfway through a project before you realize that the whole time you haven't been understanding each other, you could be finished a project yeah, and yeah, realize. Yeah. And different people need different outputs. There's, an, there's a pressure in academia to have publications and to bring in grant funding and to, you know, go to conferences. And people in the industry are, are saying, I need an applied learning here for my work. Mm. or And it's trying to capture what people's goals are and that takes time absolutely um, yeah it does but it's great too isn't it because there's so many problems you don't have to solve yes. and that you don't want to solve but somebody else does yeah yeah i, yeah, I mean yeah. at, at very least i i think about this on a technological level that when i'm there creating experiences looking at innovative futuristic ways to do therapy i i, I often think i'm so happy there's people in labs figuring out this technology if i had to do that right. in order to do what i want to do with the technology right. it'd be like filmmaker great director walking into a room now how do i invent a camera yeah, and that's why it's really exciting that. to hear about him. I have a collaborator, Thomas Parsons, in the University of North Texas, and mm. he says in his lab, half his PhD students are computer scientists and half of them are neuroscientists yes. in the one lab. It's and brilliant. so they're constantly working together. And that's what's good about the film set is that... Um, that analogy that where the cameraman can immediately talk to the director and the yeah. lighting people can talk, they can try it nice out. And I loop, think that's yeah. what we need. We need resources and we need places and uh, approaches. We need an acknowledgement of a slower approach to this research and we need facilities 
and a space to collaborate. And that's why when you talk about IEDT and their psychology and technology approach, yeah. it is actually sometimes literally necessary to put those people in the same space. Right. Uh, UCD, we're not doing bad at that. There's some yeah. really good collaborations going on, but it is a weird thing existentially in terms of where you go, because I sort of just wander between buildings and psychology the, and philosophy and computer right. science. And yeah, it's the physical space. And anytime I've reached out, there's people in the smart lab here, there's computer yeah. science, I've worked with you, there's the um, interdisciplinary yeah. group guys um, downstairs in science that like when when we reach out we can find these people yeah. and then we have all our other stuff going on that sometimes it's helpful just to pass them in a corridor rather exactly. than you know rather yeah. than have to set up this stuff but we'll get there we'll like, do it god knows what the buildings will look like in the future these adaptive virtual spaces yeah. where we can keep change oh, as the curriculum changes each year the building will shift right you know? and i know there's work going on here about yeah. trying to use virtual reality technologies and computer science yeah. to use virtual reality technologies to bring people together in those spaces mm. um that that sounds exciting well we have no end of content to keep covering right, that that's yeah. for certain <laughs> sure. well listen brendan it's been fabulous having you on the podcast it's been really great people want to find out a bit more about what you do and keep in touch with with your research and your work what, what's yeah. what's the best way for them to do that so um currently working on the the lab website which will be up soon but the, i think twitter is the best place so my twitter handle is at bren rooney mm-hmm. that's my personal one and then we have one for the lab that we use together and that's uh at M-E underscore lab tweets. I'll put a link anyway. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. M-E lab tweets. And um, that, I mean, that's the easiest place to find us uh, and keep in touch. And then through that, we'll we'll share the other links. Absolutely well. wonderful. Yeah. Well, look, fabulous having you on the podcast. Thanks for having um, me. I mean it when I say your work is extremely important. It really, really is because it's it's facilitating i think so many other things that can come from it whether it's the lab or whether it's sigmac media art and cyber psychology and psi these are just really important things because they aren't just important of themselves but more they create space and pave the way for other things that can happen so keep up the great work and i'm sure we'll talk again soon thanks for having me cheers john